John chapter 4 verse 19 The woman said to him Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship Jesus said to her Woman, believe me the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. Father, we are coming to you asking for you to speak to our hearts. Asking for you, Lord, to make our hearts and our minds available, sponges, Lord, to everything you want to do in this time. I commit every word of this to you, Lord. I commit every second of this and pray that you would do a marvelous work. I want to thank you for our wonderful time of worship with you uh, in praise. And now, Lord, we really want this to be a marvelous time in your word. So we give it to you, Lord. Without you, all it's going to be is just an exercise. But we don't want it to be that. We want it to be something perfect. So we commit ourselves to you and pray that this would be everything you intend for this time to be in Jesus in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, let's pull us into context and get us into our text. Jesus, jumping off the radar of the religious leaders, has an appointment in an unvisited part of an already unvisited part of town. At least as far as a good Jew is concerned. He has an appointment with a gal who only surfaces when others are gone. And this is where she goes when she surfaces. It's a well. A place where women would go to speak with each other and meet their future husbands Somewhere between Gerizim and Ebol is a place called Shechem, and there's a plot of ground that Jacob bought from the princes of the Hivites for a hundred pieces of silver. If you think about it, that's three and a third times that which was paid to betray Jesus. When Jacob bought it, he dug a well there nearly 2,000 years ago and gave it to his favorite son, Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, Rachel. It was this Joseph who would be betrayed by his brothers, raised up by God, become the savior of the Gentile world, then restored to his brothers in tribulation and become their restorer as well. It is this Joseph who had his bones moved back to that well after he died in Egypt. It is a well then that testifies that God can bring back and God restores. Interesting, Jacob bought that property in Genesis 33, unaware of what would happen in 34. In 34, it was his daughter who would be abused at the hand of that foreign world 
There would be a brother's vengeance, but the girl was never really vindicated or restored. And here now that girl goes. This girl now goes. Unaware of the next chapter in her life, that will encounter the true lover of her soul. And Jesus needs to go through Samaria for her. It's midday at this well. And therefore Jesus, weary from his journey, sits waiting for her. And she emerges, also weary from her journey, her life's journey, and she is unaware who is waiting for her at the well. Imagine her confusion and dread when she sees a Jew sitting at her well. Jews had condemned the Samaritans and hurled insults. The Samaritans returned by hurling rocks in response. And not just a Jew, but a man nonetheless. And oh, she knew men. They were at best in necessary evils. Jesus breaks the awkward silence with a request for water, and she responds in amazement that a Jew would ask for anything. And for as much as we see it as Jesus saying, give me a drink, notice she says, how is it, this is verse 4, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me? She knows it's asking. Jesus begins to show her that he is asking her for earthly water, and culturally he knows that all he has to do is ask, and if she is kind in some way, she'll certainly Respond by giving it. All he has to do is ask. And then he returns the thing by saying the same. All she needed to do was ask of him. And because he's kind, he would permanently supply her with heavenly water, living water. Like in the chapter before, Nicodemus, Jesus is introducing an eternal concept in a mind trapped in the temporal. And like Nicodemus, she has hurdles, therefore, to clear, to embrace this offer. For Nicodemus, he came from a legalist background, and a legalist will always have to overcome the head. The head that actually throws out the how. Legalism is trapped in the manacles of a how, because it's always about how we do our thing right. We want to do it right. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do it right, but there's so much more to worshiping God than your head. And so he says, how can this thing be? But for this gal, she's trapped in a liberal world. She has to overcome the heart. Because it's the heart that feels. And so she asks where. The legalist mind wants to know how, but the liberal heart wants to know where. Where do I find this? And driven by appetite, her heart craves a place where this emptiness ends. Truth be told, Deuteronomy 6.5 tells us that we are to worship God with both. Here we'll learn the same. In 6.5, God had said, in culminating, if you will, all of the commandments, Hear, O Israel, God's one. Would you please love me with your heart, with your soul, and with your strength? Jesus would reiterate that by telling us that's the greatest commandment. If you really want to put it all in a thing, if you were to do that, all the rest would make sense. With all of your heart, your levav, your insides, the part, by the way, that feels. And with all of your soul, your nefesh, the part that craves, the appetites. And God says, if you could just love me with this, we'll be great. But for this girl, she's heard love, but not the love that she sees here. Jesus tenderly starts to peel back the layers of her battered heart to show her, like Nicodemus, that the how and the where all terminate at him. He's the way and the truth and the life. He taps onto the honesty of her heart's regrets and he says, well, 
If that's what you want, then call your husband and come back. She responds, I haven't a husband. And I wonder how many times some man has told her at that well, he was the end of her searching. Honey, I know what you're looking for, and he's right in front of you. This gal at a well without a husband. She's now been through five husbands. It's five, at least five suitors who sang their song, did their act, made their promises, and bailed in one way or another. And now she's shacked up with some guy. But to the well she still goes, bucket in hand. She is clearly not satisfied. She has gone from hoping for the pure mountain spring and ended up drinking from the toilet. She's been sucked dry by so many people, she's finally just surrendered to it. Maybe you know that idea. Her soul's a desert. And for the first time since her virtue and hope have evaporated, she sees a beautiful cloud in the sky with a promise that looks a little bit more than just a promise. So Jesus says he knows her pain, her disappointments, her heartbreaks, her rejections, but that has never made him reluctant at all from addressing her. He has laid bare her heart's heart's dirtiest calamities and was intimidated by the filth of them. And so he sits with loving eyes, reaching out to the one who's only known counterfeit. He says, yeah, you've had five. And now you're sleeping with a partner. Not a husband, just a partner. We know that term often here. We live in a country where more people live with... uh, live with their lover than they do with their husband or wife. It is estimated by the year 2021 there will be more children born to parents out of wedlock than those in it. And she with her heart bare and raw before Jesus now begins this dance with him. Verse 19 says, The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. She has grown from Jew to Sir, Kudos, it's the word for Lord, if you will, to this word prophet. She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place that we ought to, or one ought to worship. Now, I wonder if this is the Samaritan death punch. Everyone seems to have one when you try to tell them the truth. Who was Cain's wife? What about the Inquisitions? And you realize that if you're raised in a liberal world, everything seems to be based on a concept of fairness. I don't know if you've recognized this. So no matter what you lay out that seems to be the law, someone's going to throw out something that makes it sound unfair. Oh, yeah, well, we can't make that illegal. What about the girl that's just going to get the abortion in the van anyways? What difference does it make? Or what about the person, if Jesus really is the only way, what about a person on an island somewhere? And what they're saying is, is that law just makes this circumstance I've come up with sound unfair is kind of the idea here. And this was the one for her. And it was a legitimate one. Because she's really in an interesting place. But I want to go before we even get to that. Notice what the Bible calls her in verse 19. Now for us it means a different thing. But it says the woman said to him. The Bible calls her woman. Not just the female. Not the hussy. Not the slut. But it's a term of respect and dignity. And she can't even see it yet. And I guarantee she doesn't feel it yet. But the Bible's already addressing her with some state of dignity. A girl who, by the way, is shacked up, I remind you, with some guy in a culture, by the way, that doesn't approve of that. 
She's been through five. The last time this term was in essence used to address somebody was Jesus to his mother in John 2 at the wedding. And he said, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Jesus will use it in John 19, verse 26, when he's hanging from the cross to his mother again, when he says, woman, behold your son. It is a term of dignity. And before she hears the narrative that God's writing right now of her life, he's giving her dignity and she doesn't see it yet. She is in a place where clearly she doesn't see dignity in herself. And she says, I perceive you're a prophet. So answer me this, if you're going to be a representative of the Jewish God. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Now the mountain she's speaking of is Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim is the one place that the Samaritans to this day still perform Passover, Pesach. And because they were not welcome in Jerusalem, it was the place where they kind of, if you will, modified Scripture to say that was actually the original Garden of Eden. That's where Noah's Ark ended. That's where uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. All seemed to happen on Mount Gerizim now because, after all, it's the only place we're welcome, so we might well do there. Now, clearly, that's not the case, and that's a compromise, but it's the only place she's welcome. But she uses the term fathers. This is the tradition handed down from her father's. Jesus is going to dance her from this issue of the fathers to the father. In this little text we have in front of us, three different times he's going to mention the father. And I wonder, do you wonder what her relationship was with her father? Had she a relationship with her father? When you find girls that are often advertising so profoundly and obviously in a way that is desperate for attention, what kind of relationship do they have with their dad? Do they know what it's like to be loved without having to flaunt their body parts? Do they know what it's like to be human and fail and still be loved? Do they know what it's like just to be loved because they are, not because they do? Because the Father knew that and Jesus knew that. When Jesus was baptized and the Father said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased though he had never done any of those things. He'd never done a teaching yet or, or performed any great miracles yet or raised any dead. He hadn't done any of that, but the father was pleased in him because he was his son. The same reason he's pleased in you, by the way. It'll never be your performance, but rather your position that makes God so happy. If it was by our children's performance, we would love them less and be pleased with them an awful lot less. But because they're our children, we delight in them anyways. And Jesus is going to try to introduce you to a father that does love her in the midst of all of this, in the midst of her faults, in the midst of her heartbreaks, in the midst of the things she hides from herself. And she recognizes Jesus as God's spokesperson, of course, who better than God himself. She's caught in another where. Did you notice this? Where's the where of this worship thing that you're talking about? Where do I go to get that feeling, the blessing, the anointing? And you'll find that happen today in church, not here. But when we're driven by our feelings, by that heart versus the head, heart exclusive to the head, what we'll find is we kind of look for the where. Where is the new blessing? Where can I laugh or where can I cluck or where can I levitate or where can I feel the anointing? Where can I get that feeling? Where do I get the blessing? And, and Jesus is going to say, you're really looking the, the, completely the wrong way on this. But here's the irony for the girl, and this is what she's laying before Jesus. This is the catch-22 for him is that she knows that the one place where they worship is a, is a compromise. But on the other side of it, she's not welcome in Jerusalem. 
And so she feels stuck between a world of compromise and a world where she's not welcome. And isn't that kind of the story of her life, if you think about it? I mean, the pure world that she'd love to belong to, she's not welcome in. And the compromised, murky world that she's now accustomed to, she knows that that's unacceptable, so she's stuck between a compromise and a condemn. And so between the compromised and the condemn, she throws this thirst before Jesus and says, so what do, I, what do you do? Which side do you pick on this? Do you pick the compromise of Mount Gerizim, or do you pick the place where I'm already condemned just for being who I am? And Jesus says to her, notice the first word he says to her as she asks this in verse 21, woman. The Bible's called her that, but now Jesus does. And she gets to hear Jesus speak dignity back into her life. By the way, Jesus doesn't have a problem taking a person with an awful past, or even if I dare say, a horrible present, and revitalizing the entire thing and reinventing it right there on the spot. For instance, in John chapter 8, a woman is thrown at Jesus' feet. She is caught in the very act of adultery. And they want to kill her. Now, actually, to be honest, the religious leaders don't find Jesus to be, or as I say, don't find the woman to be the real greater consequence. They find her as a tool to try to turn the people away from Jesus. And every time I read John 8, there's a part of me that gets convicted in my own heart because what they realize is they know that Jesus isn't going to bend on the law, but they also know that Jesus is also bent for the sinner. So he isn't going to bail on the sin. He's going to call sin, sin. But on the other side of that, Jesus still loves the sinner. And so they try to find a law that's going to really make Jesus pick a side. And when they threw the woman before her, there's all kinds of questions. Like, by the way, it's not just a woman that's caught in the act of adultery. The fact that they caught her in the act would lead me to believe that she couldn't have been alone. That would be weird. And for that to happen, both the woman and the man are brought out to be stoned, not just the woman. So clearly, somehow in all of this, obviously the issue of just punishing the sin couldn't be the issue where they would have brought both of them before Jesus. Oh, but the woman, bring the woman. Because after all, if Jesus gets harsh on the woman, all of those soft-hearted people that follow the tender Savior are going to bail on him. That makes sense. But if Jesus just tenderly wraps his arms around her and says, it's okay, honey, well, then obviously he's a lawbreaker and they can stone him in the process. So he's stuck, or so they think. So Jesus just looks, writes in the sand, slows their pace down, and they're all there with their rocks in their hands. And he goes, hey, go ahead. You're, you're totally welcome to throw the stone as long as you're totally innocent yourself. Hey, as long as you're without sin, go ahead. Now, there is one without sin there, and it would have been the goofiest event. If you imagine they all drop their stones convicted by their conscience and walk away. And then after that, can you imagine if Jesus just picked up a rock and threw it at her? Because he was the one that was qualified to do that. Now, that would have been a very weird scene. But he could have. But the Father did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. But that the world would be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to condemn. That, all, for, all that God had to do for the world to be condemned was nothing. It was already condemned. But the first word he speaks to her after all that is, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Do you realize even after all of that, Jesus didn't just say, Yo, yo, hussy. You know, adulterer. He restored her dignity. There was a woman who had had seven demons that Jesus had cast out, who after his death is weeping at his tomb. His first word, by the way, the same the angel spoke to her, 
In John chapter 20, verse 15, woman, why are you weeping? And I just love the fact that the Lord could look at you. Can I dare say it in the most harsh way and give you your virginity back? Give you your purity back? Give you your dignity back? And to declare you that openly for others to hear and for you to hear. Now for this woman, she's still living with this guy at this moment, but that's going to change. But he gives her the one command in all of this. Look at verse 21. Woman, believe me. That's a command. You want that dignity? You want that purity? You're going to have to trust me. Now, how hard would that be for a girl who's probably been told on more than an occasion to trust a man who's clearly broken her heart, who's clearly broken that trust? She comes with, I mean, as far as girls come, there are some girls, they come with the backpack, and there are girls who come with more luggage than a house can contain. This girl's pulled up, if you think about this pearl, this girl's pulled up one of those really big rentals, you know, the thing with the, like, three train cars full of baggage from broken promises. That's what she's got here. She knows what it's like. To have the promises broken by people who probably at the moment may have thought they meant it. He says, woman, you're going to need to believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship, and he introduces, the Father. The The dignity restorer leads her to the Father, the source of that dignity. The one who in adoption grants that dignity. It says, that's the end of your worship. That's where you should be turning it. The the location of worship isn't on the plateaued crests of earthly mountains, but in the valleys, deep valleys, of the human heart and mind. It's not from the outside where man evaluates, but it's the inside, the levav, where God is observing. And he says, I understand your where. You're looking for the where. And right now, you're looking at a place between condemnation and something that's obviously more compromised. And he says this in verse 22, you you don't even know what you worship. You don't even know who you're doing this for. Back in 2 Kings 17, when they were taught the rituals, they did it to perform the rites to keep God away. And he's like, you don't even know who you're doing this for. You did it for you. You were taught these rituals so that your life could be better because God will be away. But we know what we worship. Because true salvation is going to come right here in Jesus, the salvation. Joshua, Yehoshua's name, which means God our salvation, is coming. She's looking about worship. And salvation is from the Jews. And of course, he's going to then build on that. But I have to do this for just a moment. And I'd like you to take a walk with me. I need your Bibles open. And I want to challenge you, like always, to not just take what I say for, and assume it for granted. The term worship is used at least 187 times in the New King James Version. It'll be between 160 and 201 times. It all depends on the version you use. The Hebrew word is the word shecha. Try that word, shecha. Come on, I give it to me good and strong. I know better than that, shecha. Beautiful. If you spit on the person in front of you, you've done it right. If you haven't, let's do it one more time just to make it nervous. Shacha. 
It's used 172 times in one variation or another by itself, and it literally means to bow down. In the simplest sense, dare I say it in this way, the Hebrew mindset for worship is an act of declaring somebody else more important, prominent, or elevated in your own heart or mind than than yourself. Let me say that again. It is an act of declaring someone else more important, prominent, or elevated in your heart or mind than yourself. This is why I could say that God's first act of worship as he records it as worship is an act where a father gives his son. Because God's first act of, the first act of worship was not you to God, but God to you. God doesn't worship you as if you were greater in value in the sense of you were more an authority. But as far as God is concerned, you're more important. Isn't, think about what the word is in English. Worship is the conjugation of worth-ship worthy. You are displaying that someone is worthy, or might we just say important, valuable, precious. And God did that act before you did. Giving his son is showing you who that is. Who really takes this step to show who's important first? The first time we see it translated as worship is in Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham says to his servants, the lad and I, that's his son, and I will go over, and if you have the old King Jimmy, it's the word yonder, which tells us they were obviously from the deep south in America. You know, we're going over yonder to worship. And of course, he knows he's going to offer his son And might I say, in our simplest sense, the greater the worship, the greater act of extreme obedience. What God was showing is that we were more important to him than himself. It's a yes. That's what worship looks like to God. The next time we'll see it, by the way, will be in Genesis 24, where a servant is sent to find a bride now for that, that promised son. And when he finds the bride, he worships. And I'd like to challenge you with this. I just want to throw this out for your consideration. That we either worship out of or we worship to. Scripture tells us that true worship as God records it is out of or in response to God. But there are also times where people worship to. In other words, worship is a means to another end. Not a means, in essence, to pour forth, or if you will, to alleviate the pressure in your heart and soul that's teeming over with praise, but rather, it's in essence a tool to get something else. So let me start with that. In the book of 1 Samuel, Saul is caught. He has bailed from obedience from God, and God has nailed him on him, handed him his P45, fired him. And as Samuel is standing there with Saul... God bless you, and I mean that word for word. As Samuel is standing, the Samuel the prophet is standing before Saul. The people are waiting, and Saul says, please go back and worship with me. Because he knows what happens if Saul returns and Samuel is gone. The people will know he's fired. Now, when things are focused on in regards to worship or any action, it can be done active. That is, again, me starting it this way. Passive, it's receiving. There's one more reflexive where I, in essence, do it for me. When he says worship, the term is reflexive. In other words, Saul is not worshiping for God. Saul is worshiping for Saul. 
He's doing it in essence so that he doesn't get embarrassed in front of people by being fired. In the New Testament, we're going to actually find this quite a deal. For instance, in Matthew chapter 8, a leper comes and worships Jesus. Why? Because he wants to be made clean. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, a rich ruler, a synagogue ruler, bows before Jesus and worships Jesus because he's got a daughter that's dying. In Matthew 15, verse 25, a Syrophoenician woman who has a possessed daughter comes to Jesus and worships him because he's got a daughter or she's got a daughter that's possessed. And in all of those cases, they're worshiping God, but it's not enough. It's a tool to get God to do something. And might I say, it's never adulated like the true worship should be where God's the end of it. Let me ask you, is that where your heart is? Is worship, in essence, a tool to get God to do something? If I could just really get my praise on, if I could really just raise my hands and sing with my voice, if I could do some act of obedience, will God then fulfill some promise that I think God should have made to me? If so, then you're using God. Let's be honest. And you know what that's like when someone butters you up with kind words. I know that when my children speak really nice words to me, I know that's a means to another end. They want something. They don't talk like that otherwise. And when they're like, oh, dad. Hi, dad. Hi, honey. And of course, the natural thing is, what do you want? But to be honest, since it's nice to hear, I'll just let them go for it. I'll enjoy it for the moment. Dad, I just want you to know it's kind of cool to talk with you. Awesome. I think so too. And I want to go like, well, thanks for calling. All right. Bye. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's one other thing. Uh-huh. We know what that's like. And we get that from friends too. Hey, bro. Long time. Yeah, really long time. How you doing? And sometimes I just love to really go, well, let me give you 10 minutes of how things are going. And then they're like, when is this going to get over so I can ask what I came to call for? You know, we have friends that we know that have landed significant roles in certain West End uh, plays and, and musicals. And it is amazing how friends that they've known once from Facebook back when they were in elementary or primary school are all of a sudden their best friends. Oh, bro, I heard you made it on to Hamilton. We're good friends, right? And you're like, who is this again? And if that's really the sum of our worship, then you know what happens if God doesn't respond? We actually feel like we didn't worship right. I didn't get the tingles. I didn't speak in tongues for an hour. I didn't get the holy sweat or the holy oil or the anointment or whatever it is. And then somehow in all of it, as if that was really why we were worshiping. And in that case, we are worshiping to. Worshiping to get something. And I know that that's what this girl's used to. This girl's used to them doing sacrifices and acts and rites and rituals with the idea of to get God's blessing to get God's favor, to get God to answer their prayers, to get. But God doesn't like to be used. You don't like to be used. Why would God like to be used? But then there's another way of worship that we see in scripture. And that is worshiping out of, in response to something God does, or in response to who he is. 
So I'm going to throw out a few verses really quick here, and then we'll go through the rest of the text. But it's the key point of what we're looking at in our text here. In the case of Abraham's servant finding the bride, he had cried out to God, and he, what he recognizes is that God is there, and God is, let me say this, but God is there and God cares. He's interested, he's intimate, and he's present. He sees God respond to that prayer, although God had already promised and God's already doing it, and he brings a bride. In 1 Samuel one twenty eight, Hannah is crying out for a child, and the priest, Ellie, by the way, actually thinks she's drunk. That's got to be a real rough day at church. She's so broken up over this whole situation, and she's being tormented by an adversary over it, and the priest calls her out in front of everyone. like, yo, drunk chick in church. Because she's so broken, she can't even mutter a word, but her lips are moving and she just looks like one of those crazy people at a bus stop we see often. And she's like, I am so not drunk. Not with alcohol. I'm just broken. And now he's kind of has to eat crow. And he's like, uh, which I'm pretty sure, by the way, is unkosher. And and so he's like, you know what? Actually, God's going to answer that. I do. God's going to answer that prayer. And she begins to worship. But I say in one case, when you recognize that God is there and he really cares, you begin to worship. And this is why I'm convinced the enemy is trying constantly to get you to believe that God isn't interested in the cries of your heart. If he can convince you God's not listening, if he can convince you God's not watching, if he can convince you God is distant and he's far away or something like that, well, then certainly you'll never worship God out of that because you don't, your heart doesn't embrace the reality that he's there and he cares. So the enemy loves to lie to you that way. I mean, he can't touch you. First John makes clear, whoever is born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. The wicked one cannot touch you, but he can sure lie. And as long as you're willing to listen, he'll give you the whole performance. And that's where it starts. He doesn't care. He's not listening. Oh yeah, your heart's broken. Do you think God really cares about that? And of course he throws it out because he's the condemner. He's the accuser. Where was God when your heart was broken? Where was he when that guy broke that promise? Where was he when you thought this was going to be forever and the guy ran off with someone else? Where was he? And sooner or later you start going, yeah, where was he? And you start nodding to the enemy. You're like, God, I feel like you're so far away. Because the enemy has somehow performed his thing and he's thrown this thing where your emotions have gotten between you and God. But when you realize he's there and he cares, you can't help but worship. In Exodus chapter 4, after Israel has been slaves for over 400 years, or at 400 years, Moses comes to the people and says, God has now come to deliver you. Exodus 4.31. The people respond by worshiping. In Exodus 12.27, when God does perform that victory, the people worship. In Judges chapter 7, when Gideon is freaked out because God's put a calling on his life to bring victory, and God says, well, if you're really afraid, go down to the camp of the enemy and listen to what they're saying. And a guy has a dream about the death biscuit of Gideon. Don't believe me? Judges 7, read it for yourself. The biscuit of death. It just makes you, you know, I mean, here we are in England. Doesn't that just make your heart shudder? The biscuit of death. But it was what Gideon needed to hear, and he begins to worship. In Matthew fourteen thirty three, when Jesus calms the storm, they worship. 
In Joshua chapter 5, when the commander of the army of the Lord shows himself, Joshua can't help but worship because he realizes that God's in the battle and he's jumping in. Second, same thing happens in Second Chronicles 20, verse 18, when Jehoshaphat is told, the battle's not yours, it's the Lord's, and he's here. And all that Jehoshaphat can do at that point is worship. Let me ask you, what battles are you going through right now? Do you see victory ever in it? Do you see God in it, jumping into the battle? Do you realize why the enemy's been working so hard to try to convince you you're just a defeated failure, a disappointment, a loser? Because if you could believe that, you'll never worship God from the victory that he's already given you. And the victory he's already working in the areas you're struggling with right now. The reason you know it's a struggle is because the Holy Spirit's told you it's bad. Let's face it, dead people don't struggle. They have no conscience in that. But you know it. And the reason you're, the reason you're struggling is because you know that there's going to be a victory someday and you know that you want to be a part of that victory. And you know that this isn't it at the moment. And the Lord's stepping in and he's here to remind you that the battle belongs to him and the bat, and the victory is his. The battle belongs to him and the victory is his. The battle belongs to him and the victory is his. His. And if your heart can hear that today, you might start worshiping like you should. But if the enemy says, oh, I know that's the truth for everyone but you, well, then you'll never worship God. Like, Let's face it. Losers, failures, disappointments, defeated people don't worship. And the enemy knows it. When the tabernacle is built and God shows himself, initially, by the way, it was Moses who had to build a tabernacle because the people were going to do some really stupid things. And so Moses built a tabernacle on the outside of the camp, Exodus 33, and God shows himself in a pillar of cloud there at the tabernacle. And what's clear is God is there. And it says that the Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks to his friend. We see God showing himself in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 3. We see that God reveals himself when Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, well, let me tell you who I am then. That's where my glory is. And in all of those cases, what happens? Man begins to worship. Because you see God for who he is. Not for who you've made him. Not for the way the world's made him. Not for the way the world's kind of tried to limit him as something goofy and impotent and irrelevant, and insignificant, but as the almighty God that he is. And when you see him for that, and you recognize him for who he really is, you begin to worship. And that's why the enemy's been spending so much time trying to, trying to in essence, keep you distracted. Because if you're distracted, you won't actually look to see God's glory all around you. I mean, Isaiah 6, 3 says, as the, as the living creatures and those that are worshiping God before his throne say, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, or the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory, if you just be willing to look. So let me ask you, if that's not your heart today, what do we do? If you don't see God involved... If you don't see God as the one who's handling your battles and the victory being his then. If you don't see him as the one who's revealing himself to you for who he really is. If you don't see him as intimate, involved, and in caring. Well, then what do you do? Because there is one other place. In Second Chronicles 29, Hezekiah cleans out the temple and he reinstates it. And as he reinstates it, the people begin to worship. 
And Nehemiah 8 and 9, eight, chapters 8 and 9, they begin to read the word and they read the word for a quarter of a day. You don't have to be brilliant in math. How long is a quarter of the day? Six hours. I'll never go that long here that I'm aware of. Six hours, they read the word. And then for another quarter of a day, it's another six hours, they confess and worship. You know what they did when they read the word? They wanted to see God for who he really was. And when they saw something in their life that didn't add up with what the word said, they confessed it just there on the spot. So like, this is what the scripture says. And they're like, whoa, that's not me. God, forgive me. And they're like, well, here's another thing. Oh, I'm doing that right. Thank you, Lord, for... Making that right. Well, and here's another thing. Oh, my life doesn't add up with that. Forgive me. God says they were worshiping because they took my word seriously. If you're in a place today where you're actually not embracing who God really is in your life, intimate, involved, and victorious, and you realize that your life is really sucking when it comes to the area of worship, chances are it's because your heart really doesn't get who he really is and where he is in your life. Well, then might I say today's the day for temple cleaning. Because you're the temple of the living God. That becomes really clear in the Corinthian letters. We know that. And if you're the temple of the living God, then it's time to let God clean you out and take his word seriously. More than just information to win an argument. More than just because you know that's what God would expect of you. You don't do it too. We do it because we love him. And somewhere in all of that, as we read, I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I never expected that I would be leading Bible studies every day. I love that I get to do that. I would just read it and I'd go, whoa, I'm not doing that and I should. Forgive me. Oh, wow, I am doing this and I really shouldn't. All right, God, forgive me. I remember when I first got saved, looking at the Bible and going, hey, show me in here where it just says, you're like, what to do and what not to do. I just wanted to know because I just knew my life didn't add up. But I, and there, everyone looked at me like my, you know, I had a horn in my head, you know, like they didn't get it. Like I just want to know where my life doesn't add up so I can throw it before God. Can you imagine being there where it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what it is. It's like, God, if you say it and it's not right, then make it right. If it's wrong, make it right. If I'm not doing it and I should, get me to do it. If I'm doing it and I shouldn't, get me to stop. Because 1 Corinthians 3.16, that should be easy to remember, it's another 3.16, tells me I'm your temple and it should be clean. And when it's clean, I see you there because all the clutter is gone. And when I see you for who you really are, I see you as victorious and I see you as involved and I see you as caring. And when I see that, then I can't help but worship you. It's when I think you're distant and that will always be a failure that I don't worship you. When I'm consumed with me and the the frailty and the limitations and the finite qualities of me, that I don't worship you. And Jesus looks at this girl and he says, the hour is coming. Actually, it's now. When people who really, notice he says true worshipers. Now that tells me that there are people worshippers who aren't true worshippers. Because there are true worshippers and they'll worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's both sides of this thing. On one side it's your spirit. The inside, the cravings of your heart. There's an emotion involved. You are there. The inside wants God and sees him for who he is and responds to that. But the outside does too in truth. 
It isn't like the inside is so happy. All you want to do is wave your hands. And as you do, you start slapping the person next to you. God's like, don't do that. Let the outside do something that blesses others, not hurts them. And I realize that what Nicodemus had may have been the truth, but he had no heart. On the other side of it, the woman may have had the heart, but had no truth. And Jesus goes, you know, the thing that you're really looking for, you want to know where real worship happens? And you're looking for a mountain. You're looking for a mountain like Gerizim, where you know it's compromised, or a mountain like Jerusalem, where you don't feel like you're welcome. I'll tell you where I'm looking. I'm not looking in those mountains. I'm looking in the valley of your heart. And I want to see, I want to see worship happen there. When it's just you and me, and you see me for who I am, and you can't help but respond. And man, when you respond, I love it. Because you want to see real worship? Let your heart be right. Let there be a yes in your heart. And then, let there be a yes in your outside. Do what I tell you. But do it with your heart. And I realize in one case, we want it. We, we're all heart, and we're doing laps, and we're screaming, and we're shouting. And I think some of that is awesome. But we get so caught up emotionally, and I think emotions are a great ignition, but they are no steering wheel. And what happens is the car runs into everything. But on the other side of it, we're so caught up in being right that we're dead right. And there's no shouting. There's at best a whisper, and we're like golf clapping on that side to the God who's the Almighty. Somewhere, it isn't like we kind of even meet in the middle. If I could just be honest about it, it should be 100% of both. Somewhere in it, there should be a shout in our hearts. But there should be sweat on our hands. That's for real. <laughs> and he goes, and please understand, he says, the Father's really looking for this. And notice he says in verse 23, now, at this very moment, woman, Dignity, ma'am, a woman of respect. We don't have anything like that. Milady is the closest thing we get to that. We have nothing like that because to be honest, nobody's actually looking for that dignity anymore anyways. They want to be honored, but they don't want to honor. They don't want to live honorably. This is, it's right now. Right at this very moment, the Father's looking. And he wants to catch you doing it right. Notice he doesn't try to catch you doing something wrong. What sport would there be in that? Because he just wants to be able to see you do it right. Where your heart's in. And your mind's in. You're not just driven emotionally. But you're not also sitting on the couch of your mind not doing anything. It's like the car is revving and it's going and it's going in the right place. God's spirit, if you're going to worship him, I want both, the inside and the out, spirit and truth. Notice it doesn't say the spirit. Interesting, because there are those that will be like, you need to worship in the spirit, like it's going to be a spiritual experience where it's just the gifts of the Holy Spirit, for instance, versus you being involved. And you could be so into that that you actually aren't into surrender like you should be. Because the Father is seeking for you to worship Him with the inside and outside. You're a shell and a spirit inside, and He wants both to worship Him. And the woman says, 
well, I know that the Messiah is coming. Notice, he says, it's now that God's looking for. She goes, well, I know there's a day that's coming. He goes, but now is when the Father's looking. And I know that the Messiah is coming. By the way, John has to translate to his readers that it's the Christ. In other words, the Messiah, which is a Hebrew term, Mashiach. He says, so that those are reading, he's like, well, so you know that's the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And we read in verse 26, Lega otro, e Jesus ego emi. El soy. She goes, I know that when the Messiah comes, this will all make sense. And Jesus says to her, I am. The one thing that Moses was told in the, by the burning bush, I am. Who are you, God? What do I say? When I say, well, I mean, they're in Egypt. They've got kind of a buffet of gods. Which one do I tell him? And he goes, I am. Tell him I am. And you're like, I am who? Be a logical question. And God loves to give that to you. John's the answer. The Gospel of John has I am statements exclusive to John because he's answering the question. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd, the gate to the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the true vine. But when he starts his I am statements, the first one of them is right here. And how many times can you think of in scripture where Jesus just flat out said, oh, Messiah, that's me. That's, yeah, I'm the guy. Did he say that to his disciples at any given moment? I mean, obviously he said it indirectly, but not like this. To the religious leaders that are trying to nail him, are you the Christ? You know what he said? Well, you said it. Now understand, in the Hebrew, when you say something, the only difference between a question and a statement is your inflection. There are certain languages that are like that. We have it. We put a word order difference in English. You are? Are you? Those are different. But in Hebrew, you use the same words. You just change the inflection. So it's like, you are the king of the Jews? She's like, well, you said it. You're the king of the Jews. But the one person he actually says the Christ to, the Messiah, is to a castaway of a group of castaways. The lower of the the lower. The least. The last. The lost. Right here. I know when the Messiah comes, I'll get it. Well, he's here, honey. He's right here in front of you. The one person that Jesus just outs and says proper is a quint divorced, half-breed, mixed-race Samaritan woman. And he wants her to know what you're looking for is found right here. As we go to prayer, beloved, the hour is coming and now is. And God is looking for genuine worshipers that are more than just getting full of shouting not that shouting's wrong. There's a place for it, and I say hallelujah. I got to tell you, when you recognize who God is, there's something, it makes you do something. You can't just sit there silently. Now, that doesn't mean you can't worship God in quiet. Some of you are a lot quieter than I am by nature. I would expect you to be that way. But it's going to move you to do something. 
And we can't just blame our emotions for acting like, an, like a crazy person and then blaming it on the Holy Spirit when God says, I want you to worship in spirit and in truth. But we can't blame it on the, the scriptures or the Bible to say, I'm going to worship in truth by doing nothing because scripture demands us to do more than that. And for this girl who's come with the baggage of broken dreams and promises, he's come to restore her purity, her dignity, her hope. And to say, you know, of all those people that seem like spiritual giants, you could be the one person that captivates God today. You could be the person that stops God in his tracks and goes, oh, that's what I've been looking for. Not worship as a means to an end, but worship in response to a God who's intimate, involved, present, victorious. Isn't that what scripture tells us? So here's my prayer. That we would cry out to God today as we should. Ask God to cleanse those temples. Remove the clutter. Remove the nonsense so that we could see him for who he really is. Let him declare his name. And to open up his word with the expectation that if our life doesn't line up with it, that our life is the thing that needs to change, not the scripture. And to hand ourselves to him as Lord. He's not intimidated by our filth by our mistakes, by our regrets, by our disappointments. And he's looking at this gal and he's like, honey, you know in your heart of hearts, just living with this guy right now is drinking from the toilet. But until now, it's the best you've got. And perhaps at this point, you think that's as best as you could get. I mean, look at the past. Who's going to invest in that? So God says, well, how about instead I just clear your past? Make you pure again. And let's start over. I remind you, the Hebrew word is to make someone more important than yourself. But the Greek word, I'll close with this, is pros kineho. Pros means towards, kineho means to kiss, like a dog kisses its master's hand. It's an idea of more than just affection or love or intimacy, though it is that. It is an aspect of devotion. A dog doesn't lick your hand because it's romantically in love with you. I hope not, at least. For you and the dog's sake. But it's a loyalty. And there's a safety and a commitment. And that's the word she says. Where do I do that? Because doing it on this mountain certainly doesn't feel like that. And what you tell me, I'm not even welcome, so I'm certainly not, I wouldn't feel like that's the place. And he goes, you know where the place where that happens is your heart. That's the part where the heart says, I love you, God. Because that's in spirit. And then you start loving other people around you because that's in truth. But the greatest act of worship you'll never do. The greatest act of declaring somebody important, precious, valuable, was done 2,000 years ago when Father sent his son to die on a cross because he'd rather die than live without you. Because he'd rather have his son beaten to restore you and adopt you to a place of dignity. And I can't even fathom that kind of love because I would never kill my kid for you. So you can thank God that I'm not God. But he is. 
And what he showed is you are more important to him than the rest of the universe. And the only thing as important to him beside you would be the person beside you. When Jesus died on the cross, that past you carry is gone. And he was buried, and just like Scripture promised on the third day when he rose again, he offers a new life now. When Jesus looked at the woman that had been caught in adultery, he looked and he said, Woman, have your accusers. Where are they now? And then he said, Go and sin no more. You've got a new life now. Let's walk different. Have you said yes to this, Jesus? If you have, then I think it's time for us to let God cleanse the temple and simply say, if my life doesn't line up, then change my life. Don't change the line. Because I want to worship you by seeing you for who you really are. Knowing you're there and involved in care and knowing that you're victorious. And knowing that there's no battle that I fight, but you fight and I follow. There was a good fight, but it is following you. Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for bringing us such a gal as this one. To show us that you had to go there because you had an appointment with her. And when she would kind of crawl out, when she wouldn't expect to find anyone because she doesn't want anyone else in her business, because she doesn't like her business either, and she doesn't want anyone else judging it and looking at it because she already knows how messed up it is. But that didn't scare you away. There's no hurdle for you to climb. It's our pride that keeps us from allowing you to change the things. And our lack of faith that says, God, if you cleared that out of the house, if you cleared that out of the temple, well, then there'll be a vacancy. And I'm afraid if you remove that, I'll just be empty or lonely or afraid or whatever. And Yet you've said you love us and you'll never leave us nor forsake us. If there be any of you yet to say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord, pray this prayer with me. Father, I come to you as Father in heaven. And I recognize you love me and want me and showed how important and precious I was to you by sending your son to die on the cross so all my guilt could be punished. And Jesus, you chose to take that guilt upon your shoulders and died on there, on that cross, to let it be punished. Just like scripture promised, you died and were buried, and on the third day you rose again. And as you rose again, you offer me a new life where I can leave all that behind. And I say yes. I say yes to that. Because you are victorious, and I want to be too. So I hand my life to you and say, be victorious in me. Jesus, be my Lord. Not just my Savior. I hand myself to you now, Jesus, in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say amen. Father, we come to you and, and we tell you that there are, in our own life, states of disrepair at the temple that you've given us to be. As you've raised us now into this new thing, 
Jesus, you as the foundation, the only foundation that can be proper to build the temple you've ordained for our lives to be. We confess to you there are times we have chosen, we have chosen wood, hay, and stubble instead of the gold, silver, and precious stones you've ordained for us. And we just ask you to forgive us. Burn that stuff away. Remove from our lives that which does not coincide. We do not want to live in condemnation, nor do we want to live in compromise. We want to worship you from the core of our being, not to get you to do stuff, but because you already have, because of who you are and what you've done. Because who you are is a God who is involved and intimate and interested, victorious, mighty, and what you've done. You've given us the victory now. So we ask you to cleanse the temple. And when we open your word from this point forth, may it be, Lord, that we seek to let our lives completely fit in with it. We don't want to bend your scripture for our will while we do what we don't want to. So we ask, Lord, now, that you give us that hunger again just to let our lives correlate with your word. And if our lives don't line up, then change our lives. And as you change our lives, regardless of what the culture says, or even what the Christian culture says, if your word says it's wrong, it's wrong. And you're not taking a vote. As the scripture says, let all men be a liar, but you be true. So line our lives up with your word. You know our disgraces. You know our shames, our heartbreaks and disappointments and regrets. And you cast those all into the sea. And give us a chance to say yes to you. And our heart says yes. Our lives say yes. And in that now we want to worship you for the rest of our life with a yes from this point forward. So here's our life, Lord. We hand it to you. Jesus, in your name. Amen.